Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Constructed Resources. Got a hot one for you today. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew Beckstrom, BK here, and uh, we're going to be talking about burn decks, everything you need to know about playing burn and beating burn. Yep, these are my. This is my favorite deck to play. I play it in every format, every chance I can get. <laughs> well, you're being sarcastic, but you know what? Burn is sweet. It, it, it got Shahar his uh, second world championship title. Actually, given that he he, he triple bolted Benes, it kind of got him both of his world champion titles or world championship titles. So, you know, in a sense, and uh, well, Burn was his first one, right? Uh, I thought he won with Sultai Whip in the second. No, well, no, Burn was, he played, he, he played Sultai Whip and Burn at that, at that world. Oh, he did? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then at the, at the first one, he played Just Guy Control, but Ben, ben S cracked a, a fetch at the wrong time. Oh, that's right. Went yeah, down to nine, got triple bolted. I was in the booth. That was the first premier event I did. It was in the booth for. So, uh, I, I have still bad memories of the guild t-shirts and blazer uh uniform we we had rocking for that one uh <laughs> i'd like to bring up that i was at that tournament the the one that we're talking about just because it's oh yeah you're at the world magic cup yeah i think it's the only time i've been present for the world championship it was cool getting to see somebody get crowned the world champions it's something i probably will never see <laughs> well, i mean my the the first worlds i ever went to i was not a participant it was in san francisco and that's where i lived you know i lived in oakland so i went to worlds and it was awesome but that's one of the few things still on your magic bucket list, right? Yeah, that's true. I, I top aided one worlds and uh, lost to not drawing a land for a few turns because of my legendary bad luck. In any case, yeah. got a nice show for you today. And uh, this show is, of course, brought to you by ChannelFireball.com. And, you know, CFP is doing something pretty cool for uh, Time Spiral Remastered. They're doing a Time Spiral Remastered launch party. It's going to be next weekend. So it's the weekend of like the, the 19th uh, through 21st or 19th to 20th. And... Basically, it's a launch party kind of coordinated over discard, Discord where people play on spell table using, you know, physical Time Spiral Remastered cards. And it's going to be pretty sweet. There's going to be a lot of activities, different formats, a lot of hangouts. And you don't you don't need to buy cards from CFB to participate. As long as you have Time Spiral Remastered cards, you can play. Though, of course, CFB will also sell you Time Spiral Remastered cards if that's what you want. So uh, you can go to timespiralparty.com, actually, to, to check that out. They, they put up a website for it. So... That should be a lot of fun. And as always, if you buy anything from CFB and you want to throw in the code CR, that'll help support the podcast. All right. It's important they use a C. Yes. Really important. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, on that note, uh, I, you've got some burn decks, I, I understand, for our decks of the week. Yeah, I pulled out two of my two of my favorite burn decks from the Pro Tour history. The first one is Lee Shitian's Modern Pro Tour Favor Forged Burn Deck. And this was one of the big coming outs for sort of the modern iteration of Burn. Like this, this is sort of when the modern Burn Deck that we have seen for the last really five years came into its own because this was the first modern PT with Monastery Swift Spear. And, you know, Eidolon of the Great Rebel didn't come out that long before Monastery Swift Spear either. And so now we've got these two teaming up now with Goblin Guide, you know, a big upgrade over the sort of creatures that you saw in the past where there was something like Spark Elemental or uh, Grim Lava Mancer as sort of a, uh, a card that was played in more heavy rotation before these two creatures and just absolutely wrecking people. We got all we got a lot of the classics and we'll be going into the classic burn spells throughout this episode, but Lightning Bolt, Searing Blaze, Skull Crack, Lava Spike and just a really good example. And 
you know, the deck has gotten a few little upgrades over the past couple of years, but this is sort of where the modern burn deck in its current iteration was born. And the sideboard, I I think one of the fun things, though, that changes over time with modern burn decks and burn decks really in every format is the sideboard. And it's like, what was going on in the format where you had some of these cards showing up? And so you had four copies of Destructive Armory. That makes sense. The two copies of Deflecting Palm were my favorite, and that was uh, that's the the red and white spell that sort of redirects the source of damage back at the controller, and that's always been a fun little wrinkle when Primeval Titan has showed up in formats. That sometimes people show up with Deflecting Palm to really get them if they try to uh, to hit hard with that one. Yeah, Deflecting Palm is a very weird card that they probably shouldn't do too many kinds of because it. Like you play it and then you choose the damage source it doesn't target and like yeah you know it's got some weirdness to it but this burn deck that you pulled out is kind of like the platonic ideal of a burn deck in that if you think of a like a historic burn deck you know this this is the one that comes to mind for I think most players it's got like you said all all the standouts you know it's got goblin guide it's got lightning bolt it's got you know uh, boros charm searing blaze eidolon swift spear just like all lava spike is definitely a classic and. Uh, you know, there was a time when the when when people thought about burn, they would think of uh, of incinerate and fire blast and curse scroll, but th- those times are long past. And uh, I think this this is the the most emblematic burn deck that you could really have selected. So it was a good choice. And then next up, we've got Matt Sperling's standard burn deck from Pro Tour Magic 2015, and I, I picked this one because it's a really good example of how malleable the burn archetype is. In that you sometimes you just don't have all of the right kinds of tools. And in this standard format, you had some extremely powerful burn cards legal and standard. For instance, Boros Charm was just legal then, and Young Pyromancer was. But you know what you didn't have? And you had Skullcrack too. Let's not leave out, forget that one as one of the all-time best life game prevention cards. You didn't have really good one-mana spells. You had shock. And then you didn't have good one-mana creatures. So the deck basically just had Shocks and then a Temple of Triumph. But the whole deck was really cohesive and worked really well because its sort of its creature package was Young Pyromancer and Chandra's Phoenix. So oftentimes we think about burn creatures as being creatures that have haste. They come down very cheap and very early. And that's what makes removal not line up well against them. This deck did a great job of sort of getting the advantage on spot removal by Young Pyromancer making tokens, sometimes multiples the turns you played it, and Chandra's Phoenix being a source of flying damage that you could recur from your graveyard when you dealt damage to them. It also had Mutavault, so another nice source of going along. And it this deck just did a really good job of being able to meticulously kill the opponent. It didn't this deck in standard didn't kill as fast as other burn decks that we've seen, other rad aggro decks that we've seen in standard. But with Boros Charm, War Leader's Helix, Stoke the Flames, it could deal. Those are just, it had 12 copies of spells, which could deal four damage. So a really powerful deck. And that's partly why he was able to top eight a tournament where people were just playing things like Siege Rhino. I actually uh, lost to Matt Sperling at that tournament uh, to that deck. It was during the constructed portion. And I was also playing a red white aggro deck, but I was playing a more creature based version with like a Goblin Rabble Master. And Sperling just beat the crap out of me. It wasn't even close. <laughs> yep, main deck copies of Searing Blood. So this was a pretty good one. And uh, just of note, he wasn't playing a lot of copies of Idol and the Great Rebel. He only had one main and one sideboard. And, you know, part of that is just sometimes burn decks take advantage of weird cracks and formats. And 
in standard, it's just not always the case that people are playing a million cheap cards. And if you're the burn player, sometimes you are just the person showing up with way more cheap cards. And so I don't know the great rebel, a little more of a tactical tool than something that he went crazy on with like four main deck copies. Yeah, definitely. That's something that you won't always see. A lot of these decks just jam four Eidolons because it's just one of your best cards against a decks full of one or two mana spells. But standard back then had a lot of, uh, you know, higher curve decks. So first thing, uh, kind of recovering burn from start to finish here is what is burn and uh, how is it different from aggro? Because we actually just talked about how I was playing a red-white aggressive deck. He was playing a red-white burn deck. They're not the same thing. And uh, the... There's no like strict definition when a deck crosses the line from aggro to burn or vice versa, but I would say that burn decks typically play like 8 to 12 creatures and 20 or more burn spells. And aggro decks tend to kind of reverse those numbers where they've got like 20 creatures, you know, and like 8 to 8, 12 burn spells. And I think that, uh, you know, if you look at those proportions, that'll give you a good idea. Also, you know, a good gut check is if your opponent's if your deck, or sorry, if your deck is happy casting a deal three to the opponent's face on like turn two, then you're probably playing burn. If your opponent is it gets kind of scared and when they're at twelve life and you have no creatures in play, you're probably playing burn. You're not playing aggro. So, the I, not only the creature proportion but also the damage proportion you can look at. A typical aggro deck is looking to deal. 16 damage off creatures and maybe close out with burn, usually using cards like Lightning Bolt to, to remove blockers more than just be good cards by themselves, you know, but or, or, or just going straight to the face. But a burn deck is kind of the reverse. A burn deck's trying to get like six damage in with its creatures and the rest with burn. It doesn't really want to, to, to go, go to the face. So when you look at what is aggro and what is burn, I think there's like a meaningful distinction there. And most of the time you can you can tell the difference. Yeah. And I think a big thing about it is is you sometimes can tell the difference between a burn deck and an aggro deck with sort of damage for reach is can you win the game essentially basically by just blocking the whole game? And I think historic is probably... I think the historic decks that we've seen has probably been pretty close to the line between an aggro deck and a burn deck. And I think that one leans a little bit closer to an aggro deck than a burn deck. If you just put up enough blockers against all of their Soulscar mages and get to Lava Runners, you actually can just kind of win the game that way as long as you can close the game out. Obviously, you need to win the game eventually, but the deck's not just isn't capable of generating enough damage from just its spells and it you know we we're not, we're not going to go like deep on the math but i think if, if you basically defined a number of cards that the deck could draw and then basically the average amount of damage it would deal from its spells for on that turn of the game i i think once we're getting into the range where it's dealing more than well more than half and upwards of like 14 15 damage that is really what i think of as a bird deck yeah, so so there's a couple like kind of notable uh, philosophical differences between burn and aggro, and we're going to go through them. And this is especially valuable if you've played more aggro and now you're picking up burn because your your actually hardwired instincts can actually lead you astray here. Um, when when you're playing burn, you you want to get your early creatures out for damage, but you don't actually care about curving out. The burn deck's often happy to play <clears throat> turn one swift spear and then just the rest of burn spells. It, you just need to hit with that initial creature a couple times to kind of get your money's worth out of that creature and put them into a realistic burn range. Yeah, and when you're playing an aggro deck, sometimes it's better to... It's more commonly better to play out, like, to go, like, one drop, 
one drop, one drop, because three of your threats might be better than on turn two, might be better than just a two drop. But with a burn deck, the most important thing is frequently just literally getting your creatures down as early as possible. And so you might literally have a hand where you go like turn one goblin guide or turn one so spear. And then turn two, instead of playing a two mana burn spell, it might just literally be better to play the other one drop in your hand, even if the rest of your burn spells are just all two mana and you're just going to waste the mana because eventually they'll sort of deal their damage. But that creature, if you don't get it down on turn two, it might never get its damage in. Yeah. Uh, when you are playing burn and you cast a burn spell targeting a creature, you should be unhappy. You know, th- th- this is why Searing Blood or Searing Blaze are both fantastic card for, for burn decks because they let you have your cake and eat it too. But when you're playing burn and you have to lightning bolt one of their creatures, like you you, you should actually feel a, a little twinge. And, uh, you know, whenever you have to aim a burn spell at anything but your opponent's face and you feel bad about it, that's when you know you're like in the, in the, in the burn mindset. Because aggro decks are really happy to go creature, creature, bolt your creature, bolt your creature, keep attacking you. Burn decks really don't want to bolt the opponent's creatures, and sometimes it's worth it. You know, sometimes like it, it'll represent more damage or it's the right play. But in general, the burn decks are really hesitant to aim burn spells anywhere but at the opponent's face because their game is not to trade cards for cards. Their game is to trade cards for damage. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a classic problem. Everybody wants to disrupt their opponent. They understand that you know. Killing an opponent's creature will really set them back. And sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's not. The biggest thing to make sure is that you lean towards, like we're saying, dealing damage to the face. You can get to, you should get to a level of proficiency when you understand what's right and what's wrong in terms of when it's better to actually kill the creature. But when in doubt, go face. And if you are not an expert, it is more likely that you are erring on the side of not going face enough. It, one of the one of the keys when playing burn is you know it's kind of like Neo seeing the Matrix right he just sees the code and he under, and he understands is you now see your opponent's life total expressed in terms of how many burn spells it takes to kill them you know, th- there's a really big difference between twelve and thirteen life when playing against burn there's not that big of a difference when playing against aggro obviously every point matters I'm not saying you take extra damage or anything like that but let, let's say you're playing against standard monorite aggro. Whether you're at 12 or 13 isn't a big watershed moment, you know, when you realize that. Because, yes, sometimes you get Ember Cleave and hit for 15 in the same turn and you're just dead. Sometimes, you know, they attack you for for 6 and then 8 and you're dead. And that's all fine. Like, you know, every point can end up making a difference, but it just depends on how the game plays out. Sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't. When you're playing against a deck full of Lightning Bolts and Lava Spikes, the difference between 12 and 13 is just very concretely a card. And... The, when you get into that mindset and you and you really see the big difference and you know all the different inflection points, which is mostly just knowing how to count multiples of three, uh, it, it, that that really does show you know what your deck's trying to do and you, you're understanding a lot better kind of what what your game plan is. Yeah, there's it's and it makes what it's one of the things that just makes playing against burn pretty hard because uh, questions like is it worth it for me to fetch and shock here to be able to play this card so that I can do more things early. Am I going to regret it in terms of I hurt myself or am I going to get paid off in terms of like, I actually got to play the game a little bit faster. And so for a burn player, you want to be able to always punish them as much as possible. And when they actually do hurt themselves, like they frequently do in the modern formats where you have fetches and shocks, 
uh, you, you got to just know like, okay, here's when I can afford to just completely turn into a maniac and just literally attack with a goblin guide and a swift spear. And I know I'm going to only get lose one of them, never be able to attack again, but it's just worth it to be able to get two more points of damage because one of the creatures will get eaten in combat. Uh, one pretty big difference uh, when you're playing burn versus aggro is creature removal is re- much, much worse against burn. It's still good. Look, Fatal Push is, remains a fantastic card against Burn. Path to Exile remains a necessary evil against Burn. <laughs> you know, it's never that fun, especially now that they're playing Fiery Islet and Sunbait Canyon to, to path one of their creatures. But the, the difference between Aggro and Burn is when you draw Fatal Push on turn four against Aggro, you're usually pretty happy. It's going to kill one of their threats. The re- removal spells past the first or sometimes or, or second rather and sometimes even first against burn because sometimes just be dead cards because they they you know they got their two hits in with goblin guide then you killed it they don't really care they're not going to play another creature this game if they don't draw one and they don't have that many to draw compared to burn spells and we're not even talking about like creature removal that costs two or more mana like th- those those cards just fall off so quickly yeah and a great way to think about it is like if you. If some if you have a two mana piece of removal and you're on the draw, it's just a lock that their one mana thing is going to if, if it has haste is going to be able to attack you twice. And then the other way to think about it is if if your two mana removal spell was just a creature that could block that was hard for them to remove with burn, then they literally it could literally has the potential to catch you up against multiple of their one drops that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, a Heartless Act can only catch you up against one of their things infrequently. And Burn Decks in, the, in this modern age with their Goblin Guides, Swift Spears, and Eidolons, if you don't have the cheapest interaction possible, like you mentioned, it's just way less good against them. Well, they're very quickly going to be, they can often overwhelm it, especially when they're on the play and you're on the draw. So you're advocating for Gifted Etherborn then? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Gifted Etherborn's rough because all... <laughs> wow, I'm just coughing horrendously just thinking about how bad that card is. But no, the big problem with that one is it just dies to all of their burn spells, frequently trading down on mana because their removal spells can oftentimes be one mana in the more powerful format. So uh, I'm saying Tarmogoyf has good outs to being able to shut down multiple things, that sort of thing. And yeah, Gifted Etherborn, not so much. And then lastly, one major difference, you know, the flip side of the removal thing <laughs> is uh, counter spells are actually pretty good against burn decks, especially the the the, the, the cheaper ones. Where a card like Spell Pierce is usually just complete garbage against aggro. You would always side it out. You'd be pretty unhappy to have it in your deck. Spell Pierce has historically been great against Burn because their deck's full of spells and they have to resolve them. They play a low land count, you know. So if your deck is weak to counter spells or at least counter spells are, are decent against it, it's way more likely you're playing Burn. And that's the kind of thing that Burn decks, they actually really hate playing against Dispel. Dispel is like just one of the best cards you can have. Against burn, as long especially if you if you have other ways to to kind of stabilize the board, and then you just sit on a dispel or two, and it doesn't it doesn't really cost you that much. Whereas you would never do that against an aggro deck. Yeah, the the card that made Death Shadow playable and sometimes good against burn, despite it hurting itself so much, was just stubborn denial. Once uh, when that card was printed, because it just made it so that it was so easy for you to both get low counter a like a two mana burn spell and then just kill them before they had enough time to take advantage of how much you hurt yourself yeah the the, the kind of typical pattern there i played a lot of death shadow uh, in modern against burn is you you don't damage yourself because they're you know because you don't want to take damage until you're ready to they're in a weird dance where they it's not even clear how much they should be damaging you 
And then you go for it on one turn where you just double fetch or whatever. You drop yourself down to like five life. You play two death shadows. And then you just need a stubborn denial or two to carry your, yourself across the finish line to delay them for that one turn, knowing that, you know, they're probably going to kill you if they get another turn, but you're able to, to eke it out there. It's actually one of the more interesting modern matchups that you could find. It, it's funny because it's one where it, it, I agree. It's it's a super it was a super interesting matchup when it was uh, more common. Death Shadow not as popular these days in modern, but the thing that always but it was like this matchup where it would get really good and crazy when two good players were playing it because what it took was both players to basically deviate from their typical play patterns with the deck. Because like you mentioned, there's there's a little bit of like a game of chicken with it where neither player wants to hurt the Death Shadow player early because it just allows the Death Shadow deck to come online and the Death Shadow player doesn't want to help the burn player. But in reality, my experience when I would watch when I've seen matches of it is that a lot of times just somebody is blinking and just kind of gunning. So uh, you put together a list of the top 10 most iconic burn cards and why they're great. And uh, let's get through this list. This list is a cool one. Yeah, I didn't. This isn't like purely like one of the best cards, but it's just sort of like when I think of like burn and magic, and you know, part of this is going to be informed by the fact that I wasn't playing in 1994, but I still got some good old school hits. But like, what first comes to mind? And you got to start off with the the original, the lightning bolt. I mean, this is from Magic's first set, Alpha. Deal three damage to anything, and lightning bolt is just great because it's just we've never had something as cheap be able to deal as much damage for one mana. It can deal like it has the flexibility of being able to hit creatures. It goes face. It does it at instant speed. I mean, every everything you could ever want in a card, Lightning Bolt does for a burn deck, and it's it's never not appeared in a burn deck when it's been legal in a format. Yeah, the the other advantage to Lightning Bolt is you get to put beta Lightning Bolts in your decks, and they just look like mm, beautiful. <laughs> uh, the second one I've got and. Uh, much newer entry, this card coming to us from Theros Block, Eidolon of the Great Revel. And this is a card which it just uh, does such incredible work for the burn deck. So often in Magic's history, burn players had to contend with the fact that they were not as necessarily as fast of a goldfish as some of the other non-interactive decks in the format, some of the combo decks. And Eidolon of the Great Revel provides this tool which basically makes it impossible to play the game if you're playing a combo deck and you don't have creature removal. And even if you and even if you're not necessarily a combo deck, it if you don't have removal, just playing the game out, you're just gonna take a bunch of damage. It's gonna hit the burn player too, but in classic burn fashion, they're okay with taking a little bit of damage if it means you take a bunch too. I mean, Eidolon also was so so sick because the only cards that Burn tended to care about were cheap ones because slower ones just never didn't impact the game in time. And Eidolon just punished those cheap ones. Kind of a, a, a no-win situation for the opponent. And to just give a shout-out because this is Eidolon of the Great Roll was kind of an update of an old card. A pyrostatic Pillar, for those of you who don't know, one in red in Shem whenever a player plays a spell with converted mana cost three or less. Pyrostatic Pillar deals two damage to that player. This is from Scourge. And Eidolon of the Great Roll basically was like, well, if we change this generic mana to a red mana, we'll just make this a 2-2 along with it. And uh, it is Eidolon of the Great Revel. Uh, was a big revitalizing force for Burn. Like, I definitely saw Burn in Magic and in Modern before Eidolon of the Great Revel came around. But basically, since Eidolon of the Great Revel was printed, it has felt like Burn has never not had some presence in formats where it is legal. All right. 
Next up, we've got Sulfuric Vortex. And another enchantment, another one that's dealing two damage to players. The reason why I got Sulfuric Vortex so high is this is the card that I think of more than any other when it comes to players can't gain life. And Sulfuric Vortex just doing that job for the entire rest of the game and sort of being, you know, if Lightning Bolt is the most classic red burn spell, Idol of the Great Revel is just the iconic red burn creature, then Sulfuric Vortex is the iconic red recurring source of damage where as long as the game keeps going, you, it's like somebody is going to die. <laughs> This card sees a lot more uh, kind of headlines in cube these days. It, it's pretty iconic in, in, in cube mono red decks. But, you know, when I first started PTQing, this was a card that the mono red decks used to to really try to beat. the. It, it, it was a way to beat the cards that were trying to beat them. It was like the, you know, the the, the level up here, the one up. It's going to one up you where you're siding in life gain. I'm siding in sulfuric vortex or, or playing a main deck because it, it is a, also just like a pretty dangerous card in its own right. One of the coolest things about sulfuric vortex that happens more than Eidolon is it could end up in a game where both players are just furiously racing, trying to finish the game out, you know, by killing the opponent because the burn, the burn player taking two damage a turn does actually add up. And I've definitely seen games where uh, not uh, like a controlish deck tries to play two creatures and kill the burn deck before, uh, before vortex catches up to them. Next up, I've got the most expensive card that regularly saw play in magic burn decks, fire blast, Four red red, you may sacrifice two mountains rather than pay Fire Blast mana cost. So basically we're paying this one for zero. And uh, Fire Blast deals four damage to target creature player. The thing that always jumps out to me about Fire Blast is like, this is the card that emphasizes the, you can never feel safe tapping out against burn. So often the, the way that games end with Fire Blast in a format is somebody will have some kind of, life gain spell or counter spell in hand and it's like oh the burn player did something and they tapped out so i'm going to take this opportunity now to cast my thing and it's like bam i sack two mountains take four you're dead and what a what a what a ridiculous way to end the game and another one that just sort of is like a card that really only pure burn decks get to like play and enjoy because sacrificing two of your lands is not something you do if you're going to be playing much more of a game of magic it was always the second fire blast that got you. Whenever the mono red decks drew four mountains and two fire blasts, it is really hard to win. Yeah. So, yeah, and this is another uh, cube staple, but really this is another one where it's like, oh my goodness, if this card really go modern, I'm, I am grateful I've never had to play. I haven't had to play much against this one, but it's just dealt so much damage over the years that I can't help but being acutely aware of it. Next up, I got Goblin Guide, and I don't think Goblin Guide is as good of a card as Swift Spear, so some people might be surprised that this one is on here, but I always think of Goblin Guide first and foremost as a burn card, whereas Swift Spear, you know, we see this one in all sorts of combo-y prowess decks. Goblin Guide is a one-mana haste 2-2 two, two is just like, again, the a big characteristic of some of these, the best burn spells and burn cards of all time is they they take on humongous drawbacks, but it's okay because like they're not going to play a long interactive game of magic. They're just going to kill you. And Goblin Guide, feeding your opponent potentially lands every turn. Eh, that's all right. They took four damage before they sometimes even got a second turn in the game. Yeah, I think I think Goblin Guide is is very emblematic of Burn and Goblin Guide, Fire Blast. These really do demonstrate what Burn is trying to do, which is throw away all their cards, concede the card advantage battle just from the start of the game, but get your opponent to zero before they can leverage all that extra card. 
Yeah, it's it's funny, right? Like we oftentimes think about the lava spike experience with burn and goblin guide is like that but reverse. You give your opponent more cards instead of necessarily you losing them. Ah, searing blaze and this is the classic burn spell which just destroys creature matchups. Red red deal one damage target creature and pl- and target player and then red red for um if you have landfall then it also then it's going to deal three damage to the creature and three damage to the player instead. And what makes Searing Blaze so great? Well, that whole hard decision we talked about earlier about whether or not you want to kill their cheap creature or deal damage to their face, no longer a hard de- decision. Let's just do both. And this one doesn't hit as hard as some burn spells, isn't as cheap, but oh my gosh, the fact that it can just do two things for once, slow your opponent down, development on the board, and just still making more progress in their life total Exactly what you want from a burn removal spell. The only thing I don't like about uh, Searing Blaze is it really punished you for ever cracking a fetch land because you always wanted to keep a fetch land in play if possible so you could always landfall the, the, the Searing Blaze, which it just adds this 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 element to not cracking fetches that you, know, you, you really always have to think about when you're playing burn. Great card, though. Obviously, it's a fantastic card for any burn deck. Next up, I've got Price of Progress. Um, this this one, uh, younger players might not be aware of this one, but a, a real powerhouse. Price of Progress is one in a red to deal damage to each player equal to the twice the number of non-basic lands that player controls. And what makes Price of Progress so great is that once we get into these older formats, it's so easy to play all of these fancy dual lands and fetch lands, and then all of a sudden Price of Progress and... Legacy is just doming them for, you know, eight damage just for two mana. Um, if you want to see the all-time classic example of Price of Progress being used to the max, uh, just Google Patrick Sullivan, Ross Miriam match, and you'll get you'll be in for a real treat. That, I believe that is the most famous match of Patrick Sullivan's career. Yeah, that's got to be. And so Price of Progress, um, you know, do, doing what burn decks do well, which is oftentimes taking advantage of some weird quirk of the format to deal a ton of damage. And, you know, Eidolon of the Great Breville does that in the form of punishing people for playing very low curve decks. Price of Progress does that because, you know, sort of generally speaking, the older uh, format of magic we get, the more powerful format, the more likely it is that the mana bases are constructed up of solely or or almost exclusively non-basic lands. All right, next up, Monastery Swift Spear. This is another, rel- you know, I, I think of Swift Spear and like Eidolon as recent, like sort of entries, but at this point, it's it's been a good five plus years that both of these cards are around. And Monastery Swift Spear, you know, it it doesn't, it didn't flash and like necessarily like sort of shock the world the way that like Goblin Guy did when it first burst onto the scene. But it didn't take that long for people to realize, oh my gosh, Monastery Swift Spear is a house. One mana for a hasty one-two with prowess and a relatively simple package. Some things maybe we had seen slightly similar before, but it just turns out that, man, just having haste creatures and creatures which can potentially combo combine and make it so it, sort of each burn spell is like dealing an extra point of damage because that's pretty close to what it does, uh, just as provided for a ton of power. And that whole idea of making it so that blockers are less good against you well monastery scripture does that just the mere threat of this card growing from prowess just made it a really hard card to play against 
I, I definitely underestimated this card when it first came out, as did, as, as did most people, you know, like you mentioned. And I can't help but wonder, how different is Magic's history if this is just a 1-1 instead of a 1-2? Because it being a 1-2 is just surprisingly large when it comes down to it, because you can never block Swiftspear. If you had, you know, it's really difficult to block. Imagine you block it with a 2 2. They're like, all right, you know, cast a burn spell at your face, skull crack you, your creature dies in combat. Oh, I'm going to double block it. Okay, burn one of your creatures. Now it's big enough to kill the other one. And Monster of Spear has just consistently done work and it's getting a lot of play in modern right now, too. And whether you want to call these like prowess decks burn or not, the fact that Spear and Soulscar Mage, two very similar cards, kind of team up, uh, they're, they're really carrying these decks. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, Swiss Bear definitely sees some play outside of pure burn decks, but even in pure burn decks, definitely one of the all-time classics. Next up, we got Boris Charm. And to me, this is like the the odd weirdo cousin of the burn sort of experience. Um, this is the only card I have on my top 10 list that is not just a straight red card, Boris Charm for red and a white. And just, I want everybody at home to think, and it's like, can you remember off the top of your heads what are the other two modes other than deal four damage to target player? Um, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but I wouldn't blame you if you forgot the other two. Give a creature indestructible or or give all your permanents indestructible. Give a creature double strike. <laughs> permanents, yeah. Permanents you control are indestructible. You, you got it there on your second try for one of the cards that's probably been played the most lifetime against you. Oh, yeah. I've gotten Boros Charmed a lot, but it's in the one mode, basically. Yeah, and it, it is crazy. I mean, I, I think uh, expert burn players... I mean, one of the things that's always been like a little bit wonky about target creature gains double strike is it's like, well, how often does this deal more damage than four? And it's like in the... And showing up in these form in, in the burn decks, it's like almost never. The creatures you control are indestructible. It's pretty crazy. Um, as somebody who has played with like engineered explosives a bunch with like KCI gets burn... Uh, I have been on the receiving end of a few blowouts where I like cracked engineered explosives for to blow up idol out of the Great Revel at like a very poor time because they just indestructible in it. But the big, big, big headline with Boris Charm is four mana for uh, two mana for a four damage instant speed burn spell. And this is always the card that gets you. You know how we were talking earlier about like knowing the intervals. It's like, oh, okay, as long as I stay above six, then they'll need three cards to kill me. Boros Charm is the card that has made that. Well, if I give above six, then hopefully it'll take two cards. But if it's a Boros Charm, oh, damn, they had a Boros Charm. I'm dead. <laughs> and then last, I uh, got Lava Spike on here. And uh, this one's, you know, not, not the most powerful. But again, how could you? It, the card that probably is most one-to-one with Burn of any card on this list. Like, basically every card I've, I've named... Well, sometimes, you know, a red aggro deck in a format will sideboard into like Price of Progress or another kind of like a zoo deck will play Goblin Guide. Nobody, nobody plays Lava Spike if they are playing Burn. And I, like, Luis, do you know of any examples? No, I actually think that you could you could justify having this just literally be the number one card on the list because Lava Spike is Burn. When someone thinks of Burn, it's actually kind of... Uh, Kind of wrong. Someone when people think of burn, they think of turn one lava spike. You burn actually doesn't really want to do that. They 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 want to play a turn one Swiss beer, like as we've mentioned. But that's because lava spike is so loud in 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 burn's identity that you know when people think of burn, they think of lava spike. So yes, no no one's ever put a lava spike in their deck that isn't playing burn. Yeah, and 
I think this is also the card that gives Burn sort of the worst rap in ter- or rep almost uh, in terms of uh, this is the most simple card and like almost all of these other cards, Luis. I'm guessing you have seen creative and unusual ways of the card being played, <laughs> and unexpected things happen where somebody wastelands themselves in response to a price of progress. Or a fire blast gets used to kill their own creature so that there isn't a huge lifesteal swing. Like, all sorts of stuff. Lava Spike is Lava Spike is Lava Spike. You play it, it deals three to, tar- to the enemy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, 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 it, it, it's also kind of used to make fun of Vern as in, like, oh, yeah, you were playing the deck that just casts, you know, 26 Lava Spikes. And it's like, well... Yeah, Lava Spike doesn't give you a whole lot of tactical, uh, you know, options. You, you you just cast the Lava Spike. That's what you do. All right. So the, that's that's a pretty good primer in terms of, like, what are the burn cards? What are they about? But, like, now that we sort of have a good groundwork of what are these sort of all-time burn cards, how do we actually win with burn? And you know what? We started with Lava Spike, and let's pick it up there. You Lava Spike them early and often in the end, right? That's just it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i wrote but yes no that that you know that 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 is that is the joke and of course as we just mentioned burn kind of gets a bit of a bad rap but burn has plenty of play to it there's no magic deck that does not benefit from you playing it more skillfully or you practicing with it and burn is not an exception if you look at burn and you think wow this deck's so easy to win with it's like yeah maybe the difference between one of the an elite player playing burn and like a good player playing burn isn't huge but it's still meaningful. And the difference between someone good and someone, you know, kind of average playing burn is going to be a fairly noticeable difference in terms of win rate. So I, I think that uh, burn burn gets undersold a little bit on that. The, the the main things to keep in mind when you play burn is that you, you really want to lead with a one drop creature. You really got to get those six damage, eight damage in from Goblin Guide or Monastery Swift Spear. And as averse as I am to mulliganing with burn decks, you just really don't want to mulligan with a deck where every card is a quantifiable amount of damage and you're trying to add up to 20. The, the, the hands that you mulligan most are the hands that don't have a one drop. Like, yeah, sure, you mulligan zero land hands or you mulligan any five land hand and pro- almost every four land hand. But like hands that don't have a one drop, those are the hands where you could have a two or three land hand, which is ideal for burn. And you still choose to ship it back because when you when you start with that one drop, I mean, you, you get so much extra damage in, and then it trades for a card that it really puts you in a in a much better spot than not having a one drop. Yeah. So I got I got two quick things for you, Luis. First, I just wanted to call back to earlier we talked about Lee Chi-Tien's Pro Tour top eight deck. I, I went and looked it up. There was forty eight people who played Burn at that Pro Tour. You know who the two people that made the top eight with Burn were. Lee Shitian and Seth Manfield, both Magic Hall of Famers. So yeah. that's I mean, a good for you. That, that 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 I mean, I think that shows like I mentioned Shahar won worlds with Burn. Like he wasn't above playing Burn, you know, at the World Championships. And like there there's just a, a lot more play to it than than people tend to, to give respect to. Um nice including Shahar there was within the in a topic about Pro Tour top eights. Anyway, um <laughs> you know Shahar may not have any Pro Tour top eights. If he won worlds again, I would vote for him for the Hall of Fame. Three three yeah. world championship rings, that's 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 plenty. They don't get actual ring. Giving needling Shahar about that a little bit. I mean, it's it is pretty incredible. He is the only person to ever win back to back world championships. And but uh, his his first pro tour top eight is coming. We all know it's just a matter of time. Anyway, the other thing I was just going to say about it is London Mulligan has changed this. Um, like 
This is like if you were not here from the before times now, because now London Mulligan's been around for a little bit. Um, basically, in the past, it was like, oh, my gosh, I really can't mulligan that much with my burn deck. I can't mulligan to six very often or even five ever because it's just going to be so painful. But London Mulligan just dramatically increases how likely a burn deck is to be able to keep exactly two spell uh, two lands and have the one drop. And then you're just sort of off to the races and you have sort of the ideal early curve for burn, which is so critical. Uh, you know, kind of in that vein, is you'd much rather be land light than land heavy. On average, with a burn deck, you would rather have an, a one land opening hand than like a four land opening hand. Because, you know, two and then eventually three, like, you, you if you could pick one number of lands to draw the entire game, it would usually be three. But you'd rather have like two for the first three or four turns and then, then draw your third and then never draw another one. So when you're mulliganing and when you're making these decisions, just be aware that keeping land light hands is going to work out a lot more than keeping land heavy ones because your deck is just so good at converting, uh, you know, low amounts of mana into high amounts of damage. It just has all cheap spells in it. One thing that has changed this a little is that the the new Horizon Canopy lands, well, new as in, in modern Horizons, uh, like Sunbait Canyon and Fiery, Fiery Islet, they they do let Burn kind of get, get, get out of the situations where they draw five or six lands, which historically those were games they basically never won. But now, when eight of their lands can actually just be cashed in for another another draw, then they, they can still win some of those games. But the point still stands. The burn decks are so strong when they draw three lands and pretty weak when they draw six. Yeah, it's super important. Like, we, we talked about, you know, it's important to have early creatures, but you do just still need a critical mass of spells uh, in order to get over the finish line with burn and... But yeah, Sunbay Canyon, great eventually to crack, but let's not be doing that on turn three because we're super flooded, please. <laughs> uh, when you're playing Burn and when, you, when you're deciding whether to kill a blocker and go face, it's, it's actually, this is one of the more complicated spots. I bet this is one where, where you know, Seth or Lee got a lot of mileage out in that tournament because when you're playing aggro and you have the option of casting a three damage spell, let's say Lightning Bolt, at one of their creatures to, to get a two point attack in, what, what, is, what percentage is that right? 90%? Like so, some really high percentage because you, you're putting yourself a little more ahead on board. You're only giving up one point of damage. Like you're 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 trading one for one instead of zero for one. When you're playing burn, it's really not that simple because when you're playing burn, first of all, there is those life increments we talked about. Uh, I think you made a great point with Boros Charm earlier about those. And then uh, second, you you have to look at the when this 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 gate or this door of opportunity is going to close. Where you never get combat damage through again. You know, you, you mentioned earlier uh, do, making the attack. When you attack with Monastery, Swiss Spear, and Goblin Guide into a Tarmogoyf, throwing away one of your creatures to get two points of damage in. It's because you know you're not going to get more creature attacks in. You don't have that many creatures in your deck, and you really don't want to be spending further burn spells on our creatures. Actually, the way you get trapped in burn, and I've seen this happen mostly from the other side because I play against burn more than I play burn. They kill my creature to get their two-point attack in, and then on my next turn I play another creature, then they kill that creature to get another two-point attack in. Then on my next turn I either kill their creature or play enough blockers that they don't get to do that again. That actually wasn't a great exchange for them. Because in you end up down down damage there. You instead of you know spending six damage to deal four, you could have just gone to the face twice and dealt six. Of course, you know, the board position's a little different and, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. But with Burn, you have to do a, a good job of predicting 
how likely it is that this creature is going to get in an extra hit. What's it going to cost me to get that extra hit in? And if, you know, if, if the difference is again, negligible between, uh, you know, 10 life and 11 life, cause you mostly have three damage spells, then sure. Doing one less and having them at 11 instead of 10 could be great because now you're not down a card. But if it's the difference between nine and 10 life, sometimes you'd rather just go to the face, get them to nine and then try to burn them out from there. Yeah. And the stuff is obviously hard and complicated and that's what makes magic great. Like, Sometimes it'll be a little bit less damage, but you're killing a card of theirs that has the ability to start pressuring you. For instance, something like a Mantis Rider is a card which, you know, threatens to block your Goblin Guide, but also is just clocking you in the games. And so by killing the Mantis Rider, maybe now you're actually unlocking more turns for you to top deck more burn spells. And so you've got to be thinking through all of these dynamics A great way to think about it and to really distill the idea is to evaluate your creature if you're deciding if you're going to try to kill their blocker or force through damage by a chump attack is evaluate your creatures based upon how much potential damage is still left in that creature. And the reality is, is sometimes your creature is like, basically, you know, it's going to get wrapped or killed or blocked in the future. The potential damage it has left is just two damage. It could maybe get one more attack this game and that's it. So let's not fight too hard for it. When you're playing with a more typical aggro deck, removal of their blocker, what it means is that unlocks your creature to be able to attack this turn and next turn and the turn after that. And part of the reason why you don't attack two creatures into one blocker that'll eat either of them is that if you get a couple more creatures, well, then like three turns from now, they all can go wide and most of them will get through. With a burn deck, you're like, well, I'm never going to draw that many creatures. I might as well just get an attack while I can. And so we're both thinking about what the immediate exchange is going to be, but also keeping in mind what is the potential for what these cards could do in the future. When the potential is limited, it's time to take your chips and cash out. And then kind of kind of lastly with burn is the overall philosophy. You got to play to your outs. When you sign up to play a burn deck, you're going to put yourself in a position where you just need to draw the right spell to win. Granted, the reason that works out in Burn more often than not is because the right spell is literally one of 20 spells in your deck. But this is the deck that I think in the course of Magic history most puts itself in this position, right? Where it's like, all right, I'm empty-handed and now I need to draw the card I need to draw to win the game. And it's just like, I need to draw two Burn spells in the next three turns or I'm going to lose. You got to just be okay with that. You you have to understand that's where you're going to be. And you have to kind of try to give up trying to control that or do or, or, or have the destiny in your hands, which also is kind of an illusion because you're always at the mercy of what you draw. That's just how magic works. Whether or not you lose on the spot, like with burn, or you lose in five turns with your control deck, it doesn't really matter. But with burn, it's just really in your face. And that's just the part of the burn experience. And you got to put yourself in a position to top deck. You can't, you can't try to take defensive plays to kill their creatures to buy yourself more time. You just got to like, all right, I'm going to un- unload the, you know, end of turn Boros Charm Skullcrack you. All right, is my top card Lava Spike or is it not? Yeah, it's it's always a funny situation. And uh, one that has been the topic of conversation at many conversations in between rounds of Magic tournaments. Have you, Has anyone ever come up to you and talked to you about whether or not their burn opponent top decked the lethal burn spell <laughs> i i try to I, try, I surround myself with people who have who gone uh, past that level of discourse but yes i have heard that i have heard that many times yeah it's a it's a classic and you know it's one of the it's one of the more acute le- lessons in magic you know we often talk about the idea of like put yourself in a position to win and then control what you can control and let it what 
things happen as they happen. And, you know, I've had tournaments. They don't stick in my mind. Like they're not the most memorable games of magic in terms of like, I don't remember specific instances, but I knew I've just literally won hundreds of dollars or lost hundreds of dollars at like many grand prix over the year, just based upon whether or not something came off the top of their deck. And you know what? Years later, it just doesn't seem that important. Each individual one. So just, just enjoy the games because at a certain point it's out of your hands. And with burn, sometimes it's just out of your hands. So, so what are the, the best strategies to beating burn? The keys to beating burn? Uh, so first off, uh, and this really comes up in, especially in known deckless formats now for game one, mulligan to playable hands. Uh, as we talked about a bunch, uh, on the opposing end, playing against burn, card economy is not the thing that the game hinges on. You don't beat the burn deck very often because you just drew more cards in them in the game, because you're going to play more spells and do more things. Is You're going to beat them because your best cards are frequently worth more than their two medium cards. So an example of that would be just, you know, something like, you know, a, a nice big life gain spell, like, you know, weather the storm, for instance, it's just going to gain you so much life or like an Uro is a, is an even more recent example that it just doesn't matter the fact that you were down cards, as long as you were able to play and, and bring back your Uro. Um, the other big thing about this to keep in mind is that the sort of cheap removal spells early makes so much more difference than having multiple expensive ones later. I mean, a fatal push in your opening hand can save you six points of damage. Uh, you would trade multiple cards for that against a burn deck. Yep. And so being able to mulligan to a smooth early land development is another nice one. Like if you're playing a deck which has both like fast lands, but also like shock fetch lands, well, like the difference between needing a red blue land and getting steam vents versus being able to play a spire bluff canal is a huge difference. And so sometimes literally just mulliganing a seven card hand with with a deck and then getting a a less painful early mana development uh, could just literally be worth being down a card next up we've got stop the recurring sources of damage and these are typically creatures and so what i mean by recurring sources of damage is lava spike deals three it always deals three and you know with rare exceptions of like a tour brand being in play it's gonna deal three five years from now too um, but a Goblin Guide deals a variable amount of damage. It deals zero damage some games, six damage other games. And so if you can do something to meet, make it so that the recurring sources of damage hits the low end, and whether that's a blocker for their creatures or a removal spell, that's fantastic. It's important to keep in mind that the other thing that falls into this category are artifacts and enchantments, things like Shrine of Burning Rage, Roiling Vortex, the effects which can deal a lot of damage over the course of the game, the, all of these things become a lot more prominent in the post-board games. Burn decks are frequently aware that you are going to have effects that basically trade one for one. Anytime you trade one for one on an actual like trade one for one basis, uh, that, that's a good exchange. And when I mean trade for one, I mean trade for one in the purest sense of like, I traded, I got everything back. Like a goblin guy that hit you once, and then you killed it is not a one for one trade in a burn matchup. They got through two points of damage. But when you actually like fully spell pierce a spell, that's a one for one, and that's fantastic. You are just up in that exchange because their math no longer works. You also uh, you, you also want to lean on life gain. This is the this is the probably number one for most people, right? Like the, when you think of burn, this is this is what how people think. Oh, I'm going to stop burn by gaining life. Yeah, I mean, and the reason why I put this lower down is I just think it's it's. The burn decks are just too good now with Swift Spear, Eidolon, and Goblin Guide 
and they basically have been since those cards became a thing at continuing to deal damage if you don't interact with them that just gaining life is just not enough and we see this even in like formats like Histo- historic which are on pioneer which have you know like get to lava runner a get to lava runner and this is like sort of the go-to sort of cheap haste creature when you don't have goblin guide in a format it just takes if you have two get to lava runners and somebody gains four life it literally takes one turn for the, them to gain four life so it's like just these creatures being in play and continue to do their thing just made up for an entire turn's worth of mana the card you drew so if you're like you want the life gain to either be recurring and by that i mean something like a lifelink creature or an enchantment or artifact which is gaining you life or instant speed the reason why sorcery speed little life gain effects are real are quite overrated something like siege runner for instance it's so easy for a card like skull crack or roiling vortex to negate the life gain but we're, we're talking about a card like kalidus or baneslayer angel well then the life gain that they they get you will just if it works well then there's going to be more life gain and they bought you more time for it because they gained you some life and so the game just completely snowballs out of range for the burn player so they're just so much more valuable of creatures against burn than something like a siege rhino which is just a one shot and done i I will say that one of the classic best cards against burn timely reinforcements it really doesn't fall prey to this because it gains you six life but it also stops their, their their creatures from taking that life back yeah and six and yeah and it's important to keep in mind the the amount really matters like Six life is like a lot more than three, for instance. We're now talking in the range where you're making up for potentially multiple spells. So, yep, Timely's been a great one in modern over the years. Is six life a lot against control? No. Against burn? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the part of the things that makes magic great is like it's a game where, you know, different things matter at different times, wildly different amounts. And that's what keeps the games fresh. Like sometimes it's really all about this creature. Sometimes it's really about the spell. Sometimes it's really all about your life total. Uh, the big thing that Kalidus and Baneslayer Angel does, and the reason why I highlighted them in particular, you know what that card does? It kills them. You can't be all reactive. They yeah. will keep taking cards and they're good at doing it. If, if every card in a burn deck is worth some amount of damage, every turn is therefore also worth some amount of damage. And if you, you, you will at some point have to reduce the number of turns. That's actually a really big difference too. Now that I think about it, when you play against aggro versus burn against aggro, you can often stabilize and end up in a spot where they can't kill you anymore. That the control deck has stabilized. That's why it's called stabilizing, you know, and against burn that tends not to exist. Yes, you can lock them out. There's some ways to do that. You know, you're like, ah, I found the, the sensei's top counterbalance. You know, if you were playing legacy pre-top ban or you, you, you drew your second chalice of the void. Now you've chalice for one and for two. But in general, against burn, your goal should also be to close out the game because eventually they're just going to draw enough Boros charms and lava spikes that you, you're going to run out of stuff to, to stop that with if you give them too much time because their cards are by definition designed to be hard to, to block, to stop. Yeah, and th- this is a tricky one. I think the place where... So a good example, I'm trying to think of one historically, is like there have been times where I have played like left in cards, like say the Scarab God, for instance. And the Scarab God, okay, I've left that in my deck post board. You know what? That card isn't. It's not particularly great against something like Burn because you know what? Its its abilities just aren't that meaningful. But there have been times where I've played decks where it's like, you know, what the Scarab God does. It's a five mana five five, and it doesn't take that many hits to get there. And so, if your deck is light on ways to kill people already, you want to make sure that you are careful before you side out too many of them. 
the thing, the card might not be the most efficient in the matchup. It might not be the place that it shines the most, but you do actually need to make sure if your deck can't fully like prison lock them out. And we'll get to that strategy in a moment that you actually are capable in over the course of say the first like eight turns of the game, killing them. And sometimes it's pretty easy for people to side their decks into a configuration where it's like, well, if you got a little bit unlucky with your draws, you just will never kill them. I remember uh, playing the, the scissors deck at PT Vancouver the 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 insole artifact blue red deck and the the matchup against the burn deck in that format which the burn deck was a fine deck in that format was so easy because you would just put insole artifact on a thing and kill them in a couple hits and that just gave them a very short time window to draw enough burn spells and their deck was designed based on what they thought the format speed was and it, you know it it had it didn't have access to really powerful things like fire blast. So it didn't even have that many three damage spells. So you end up in a spot where since you shorten the game by an amount that normally the game doesn't get shortened by, the burn deck doesn't have the capability of killing you most of the time. And then last, I got locked them out. Um, And this is sort of the last way to beat burn. And this is where we think of like the the hard hate cards, the cards which are aiming to invalidate huge swaths of their deck. Leyline of Sanctity, Core Firewalker, something like Oriok Champion just by being a life gain spell that is pro-red chalice of the void to make it so that their spells just literally will get countered when they play if the burns player doesn't have good sideboard tech um then this will just this this stuff can go a mile and you can do some of this stuff in lieu of basically anything else on this list this can make up for mulliganing this can make up for not killing the recurring sources of damage or the fact that you're not gaining life or that you're not killing them the big thing, though, is that it is best paired with at least some of those kinds of things as part of your strategy, because ultimately, burn players, I, I know they get this reputation, but they're not idiots. Like, they put this, if there's a really good artifact or an enchantment against burn in the format, they have destructive reverie. If there's a really good, um, like, pro red creature in a format, well, then they will, you know, they'll play with Kozlex Return, you know, a, a source of, da- or Shrine of Burning Rage, a source of damage which feels red, but technically isn't red, so it gets through protection for red. Yeah, I mean, you even saw that in, like, Spurling's deck with uh, Chain of the Rocks, sometimes Modern Murder plays Path to Exile, like, they... They have a toolbox of answers, so don't count too much on this. Like one of the dangers, just in general, life and magic is treating your opponents uh, like they're NPCs, non-player characters. Where they, they're like, uh, you know, I'm going to put in Core Firewalker and burn. It's going to hose them. It's like, well, they also just understand Core Firewalker is a card that exists. So don't, you know, by all means, play Core Firewalker. You know that card is good against burn. It's not. It's not a joke, but. Be aware that they're also not just going to sit there and just fold to one card if if that card is a well-known quantity. So, yep. And in general, if you were playing one of these older formats where Burn is a popular deck, it's still uh, it's a major player right now, still in Modern and Pioneer. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll get to a point again where it's big and, and historic and maybe even in standard. But overall, the strategy, I would say, is... Do all of the things that we just told you about for beating Burn and try to do some of it if you can. Um, it's sort of the easiest way to make burn a, a good matchup is to make it so that they can't just tech against one particular thing that you're doing and that you're hitting them from as many encountering them on as many angles as possible. It'll just make it their life much harder and will allow you to actually win some of those games where they're on the play. They had a good early curve, but if you're actually doing all the things I mentioned, stopping the recurring source of damage, gaining life, actually closing out the game and 
you know, coming up with some cards which can sort of interact or trade or block multiples of their cards, that actually is a recipe that can beat even the best burn starts. All right. So there you have it. Uh, burn, beating it, playing it, trying to figure out how to, you know, how, how, to, how to be one with the lightning bolt. And uh, yeah, burn's a good deck. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good burn decks in a lot of formats. Standard doesn't really have a burn deck per se right now, but it's been a consistent deck in like modern, pioneer, uh, historic, all of those formats. So once, once you get a, a high enough, you know, a density of one and two mana red cards, a burn deck eventually emerges. Yeah, absolutely. So not, not, neither a deck that you see me or Luis register too often, but you know, if you want to compete in magic at the highest level, you better have some experience playing with and beating, figuring out how to beat burn because, uh, you're going to run into it. They, there's, al- there's always some people who, well, that's what they like to do is watch the world and the rest of the tournament burn. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that'll do it for this week. You can always find me on Twitter at LSV or BK at Abext. And uh, well, we, we, uh, you're welcome to field your constructed-related questions. And we will see you next week. So today is a kind of an interesting anniversary, Luis. Uh, I don't know if do, – do you know what happened on this day a year ago? They canceled the first bunch of magic tournaments. Oh, that is actually true. That did happen. But uh, I think for the for the world, it's sort of and especially in the US is when this all became like, oh, this is not just like real. This is really real. And it was uh, this is actually the night that the NBA season shut down with that memorable uh, Utah Jazz Oklahoma City Thunder game that didn't happen where the players were literally on the floor getting ready for tip off when they called the game because Rudy Bear, Gobert's test result came back positive and I remember I was out actually playing basketball that night and it was just like, it, it didn't seem real that something like a professional sports league could get shut down. I mean, really the only other time I remember that happening was in my lifetime was nine 11. And that was like, well, this is obviously a very temporary thing. And uh, you know, it's, it's been a year and it's been um, obviously we've all had our ups and downs with it. And one thing I just was, as I was reflecting on this past year, I wanted to think about, I was thinking about, it's like, you know, Luis, like, We've all had things that have been harder to deal with than others for the pandemic. Obviously, people, you know, there's been loss of a lot of loss of life, a lot of sickness. Um, people have lost jobs. It's just been really hard on people in all sorts of different ways. You know, I'm sure lots of people have found themselves sliding into bad habits again, just things to help them cope, whether it's like bad eating, poor exercise habits, you know, maybe you've lost touch with people, uh, you haven't been as good of a friend or family member. I mean, it's, it, it has been hard. And the thing that I just wanted to, that I was thinking about is, and I just want to remind people is like, you, I think it's important that people take a certain amount of pride in what they have done over the last year. Like if you, it, if you have basically survived over the last year and have some semblance of sanity left, you have done something which basically I didn't think that I could do or that most people were capable of. Like I did not basically think that it was possible for us to just spend an entire years almost exclusively in our homes and still be like functioning people. But we are able to most like most of us do our jobs and still keep ourselves fed and still keep the world running basically all remotely. And I think you should take some sense of pride and accomplishment. Obviously it's not how any of us wanted to spend the last year, but it's been hard. And if you've managed to find ways to get through it, to just make it to another day, 
you know, good for you because there's no, no one could have ever expected you to do this and you did it to some degree. And hopefully, you know, as the vaccines timeline is accelerating and hopefully everybody's going to be, it seems like people are going to be getting vaccinated, you know, in the next couple of months. Um, and we start returning to a sense of normalcy and people, I don't want, I think it's important that you not feel bad. Like don't beat yourself up because maybe you let something go or you developed a bad habit or you just feel like it was just a miserable year. The, the bet is if you are able to make it to the other side of this still in one piece to some degree, um, that that's something to be proud of. Yeah, I, I agree with you, BK. They, you know, like 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 you're saying now, they they said it couldn't be done. They said we couldn't get to 33 episodes of construction resources, but you know, he, here we are, or 32, whatever it ends up being. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we started a podcast. You know, there's been bright spots here and there, um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm excited for the next year. It's it it'll be it's if we can get life back to some degree of normal again, and you know, some things will never totally go back to normal. We'll all have gone through this together. And, you know, I mean, it's, I, I think the thing that I was looking back and thinking about is like, as we come up on all these one year anniversaries is like how truly terrifying the first month or two of all of this was. And yeah, this sucks, but Back then, just seeing things like the NBA season is done and just seeing the images of what was going on in New York and Italy at this time a year ago, um, you know, you try to be grateful when you can. And just literally knowing that we're not living in that world where we don't have as much fear of the unknown as we like, we don't have that fear right now. Like this situation is bad, but we can cope with it and we're coping with it and we'll get through it. It's it's nice to be at that point, at least. (laughs) 